This program provides education, not advice. Sponsors pay a fee for endorsements and interviews. See the truthayf.com disclosure page for details. This is where technology, innovation, and personal finance come together. This is the truth about your future with Rick Edelman. Brought to you by Global X ETFs, dedicated to providing investors with unexplored intelligent solutions, and by Invesco QQQ, a fund that allows you to access the innovators of the NASDAQ 100. Invesco.com slash QQQ. It's Friday, January 20th. I'm Rick Edelman. Welcome to the Truth About Your Future podcast. Coming up later on the program, our crypto glossary, helping you understand the jargon that fills the world of crypto, plus a special conversation with Invesco's Matt Brill, North American head of fixed income, on what's going on in the bond market, and Gene's word of the week. But first, I want to talk with you about real estate. I told you about how real estate prices are falling. A lot of people who bought homes last year are now discovering that their house is suddenly worth 10 or 20% less than a year ago. If you're buying a house, not only do you have to rethink how much you're willing to pay for the house, you also need to carefully consider how you buy it. I'm talking about the transaction itself. You know the drill. When you sign the contract, you have to wire your earnest money, that's your down payment, to the title settlement company. After two or three months, after you do the inspection and the title search and you get approved for the mortgage, you go to settlement. And the day before, you have to wire the rest of the money to the settlement company. The title company sends you an email with the wire instructions and you send that info to your bank. They wire the money, hundreds of thousands of dollars, often millions of dollars. Watch out. The Secret Service says people are getting fake emails that look like they're coming from your title company, but in fact, a hacker is impersonating them. Yeah, the scam is a fake email. The wiring instructions have you sending your money to the scammers, not to the real title company. If you tell your bank where to wire the money and the money goes into the pocket of a crook, your money's gone. You have no recourse. The bank's not liable because they did what you told them to do. FDIC won't reimburse you either. Neither will your insurance company. That's half a million bucks maybe that you spent years accumulating. Gone in an instant. Forever. And don't think it's just one fake email you get. The hackers cultivate you for months. See, what they do is they gather contact info of lawyers and real estate agents, title companies, mortgage brokers, and then they send emails to you that look a lot like their emails. You start emailing with these people thinking you're emailing with your actual agent or your title company, and you don't realize you've been engaging with a crook. So when they send you instructions on where to wire your money, you think nothing of it. The FBI says this kind of fraud has caused over $4 billion of losses in the last two years. Real estate deals are one of the biggest areas of loss. The crooks like to target real estate deals because, let's face it, the transactions are huge. I mean, how often do you wire millions of dollars? So, if you're planning to buy a house, talk, and I mean talk, don't email, talk with your real estate agent and the title company and the bank. Talk to them about the steps that they want you to take so that you don't lose the house of your dreams to a crook. That's a bummer of a story. Let me lighten the load a little bit and share with you a poem. It's called The Wisdom of Rick Edelman. No, that's not me saying that. That's the title 
of a new poem. It was written by Mark F. Stone, one of the devoted listeners to this podcast. Mark is a poet, and he decided to write a poem about me. And with his permission, I'm going to read it to you. The Wisdom of Rick Edelman. Tush on the sofa and heels on the hassock, buying a fancy car, new or a classic. Drinks with umbrellas imbibed on the strand, these are the golden years that we have planned. Fruitful investing is hard to intuit, learning the basics will help you get through it. How can you grow your retirement coffer? Rick has some nuggets of wisdom to offer. What should you purchase? Each fund has its facets. Why are there so many classes of assets? Rick's learned counsel is simple and terse. Own some of each so your nest egg's diverse. When one of the classes of assets you own grows faster than others, you might then be prone to just let it grow. One can see the attraction. Rebalancing, though, is the more prudent action. Don't fret when the market is falling or rising. Invest every week with a long-term horizon. A pittance saved weekly for decades compounding will yield a remittance that's truly astounding. Saving for college should start right at birth. Growth over decades will maximize worth. It's easy to set up a 529 plan. Growth is tax-free, so it's really a fine plan. You may not develop a nest egg as stellar as those of Jeff Bezos and John Rockefeller, but using Rick's wisdom assiduously will render your nest egg the best it can be. My thanks to Mark F. Stone, the poet of that new poem, The Wisdom of Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Your Future. Ever heard of a DAO? D-A-O. Decentralized Autonomous Organization. What on earth is that? Well, this is the newest internet version of an organization made available through blockchain technology. What is a decentralized autonomous organization? Well, let's compare it to the kind of organization that you know very well a company. You work for companies, most likely. You work for a big corporation, perhaps. This corporation is centralized. It is located in one specific place. That's where the corporate headquarters are. You've got the chief executive officer and the board of directors. They make the decisions as to everything that happens in that company. They determine the products that they're going to manufacture and sell. They determine who gets hired, how much they're going to pay those people, what the product is going to be priced at, where it's going to be sold, and how it's going to be sold. Everything is centralized at the very top of that food chain. And everybody else, all the worker bees, have to follow those instructions, whether they like it or not. You don't like it? You can quit, but that's about it. Along comes a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. This exists on the internet. There is no central authority. Instead, a group of people get together, they buy a token, giving them access to this DAO. The token is basically their access point. Picture it like an airline ticket letting you on the plane. And once everybody is a member of the DAO, everybody gets an equal vote. The DAO will be formed to accomplish a particular goal, and those who share in wanting to get that goal accomplished will all chip in to provide money that the DAO needs to pull it off. The most famous example of this, the Constitution DAO. 
a whole bunch of investors and consumers got together, contributed $40 million for the purpose of buying a copy of the U.S. Constitution. They were outbid by a billionaire who paid $43 million. These folks only raised $40 million, and so they were outbid at auction. But the goal they had was to buy this copy of the Constitution. Had they won that auction, they then would have collectively decided... Where would the Constitution be stored? Where would it be displayed? Who would be responsible for managing it? This is a collective environment. You can call it uh, a commune kind of structure where everybody collectively has one vote in how this is all operating. There's nobody in charge, nobody in command. Instead, it's decentralized and it operates autonomously all on the Internet. Nobody needs to have an office building. Nobody is spending any money to operate the business. It all operates for free and autonomously on the Internet. A decentralized, autonomous organization. That could well be the corporate structure of the future. And if you would like to learn more about DAOs, read my new book, The Truth About Crypto. I'm Rick Edelman. Coming up on the show next, what's going on in the bond market We're going to talk with Matt Brill of Invesco, and then Gene's Word of the Week. Meet Schwab Intelligent Income, a simple, modern way to pay yourself from your portfolio. Overcome the complexity of income needs in retirement with automated tax-smart withdrawals that you can start, stop, or adjust at any time without penalty, plus ongoing monitoring so you'll always know where you stand. And since lower fees means more money for you to invest, you pay no advisory fee. Available with Schwab Intelligent Portfolios. Visit schwab.com slash intelligent income, a modern approach to wealth management. The Truth About Your Future is sponsored by Global X ETFs. Exponential technologies are transforming the world around us and creating investing opportunities along the way. Artificial intelligence, blockchain, and clean energy are among the breakthroughs shaping new possibilities for the future. But is your portfolio keeping up? Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can invest in these and other disruptive innovations. Welcome back to The Truth About Your Future. I'm Rick Edelman. You know, I love these Friday long-form shows, uh, which is very reminiscent of what I used to do on the radio for 32 years. But the best part about the podcast is that I'm not restricted by the radio content, meaning I don't have to cut the commercial every X number of minutes. So we get to take our time and delve deep into topics that really, really matter. And one of the biggest, most important topics as we go into 2023 is what's going on with the bond market and the world of interest rates and inflation. And to help us delve into that, I'm really happy to bring on to the show Matt Brill. Matt is the head of North American Investment Grade for Invesco Fixed Income. Invesco is a household name, of course. They are one of the largest and oldest mutual fund and ETF companies in the world. You can learn more about Invesco at Invesco.com. Matt, thanks for joining us here on the show. Thanks, Rick. Good to be here. So first, I want to level set with everybody. When we talk about the market and market volatility, everybody naturally assumes we're talking about the stock market. But in fact, the bond market is far bigger and far more volatile than the stock market, isn't it? 
It certainly has been more volatile this past year, yes. Um, I think when people sign up for bonds, they think it'll be less volatile, and that's why last year was such a surprise for so many people. But it is a lot bigger, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I think that um, one of the reasons people assume that bonds are safer than stocks is that there's a maturity date. If you hold the bond long enough, you'll get to maturity and the issuer will refund your money. That isn't necessarily true in stocks. You buy stock in IBM, there's no promise that they're ever going to give you your money back uh, or, or all of it or any part of it. So that is good to the extent that it exists, meaning if you buy an actual bond, not a bond fund, and if you hold it to maturity, and there aren't very many people who are buying actual bonds or holding them to maturity, which means they're subject to the same market forces, the market fluctuation that exist in the stock market. And people really need to get familiar with that fact. You mentioned your agreement that the bond market is much bigger than the stock market. Elaborate on that, because I think that fact surprises a lot of people. Yeah, so pe people don't realize how much debt there is in the world. I think you're surprised. We all hear about government debt. You know, we hear about our deficits and we keep adding more and more to it, um, to the national debt. But they also don't realize that corporations have debt. You know, you'd be surprised Apple borrows billions of dollars every year, yet they still have a huge cash balance. You know, why would they ever do that? Well, you know, they have certain reasons for building a factory or sometimes they want to buy back stock. You look at companies like Coca-Cola, they have debt too. Households have debt. When you get your mortgage, that all shows up into our market. So there's a lot of different places that debt comes from. And even if people have the ability to pay down their debt, sometimes it's still better for them to keep that debt out there. That cost of capital might be cheaper. You get tax advantages for owning debt. So there's a lot of reasons to own debt. Sometimes it's good. Too much debt is bad. Um, so they have to balance that out. And you know, when we look at the uh, the overall market, there's many different places that we can find interesting um, opportunities for fixed income. And it's not just in government debt, but that's usually what most most people are thinking about. Yeah, I, I have the same attitude when it comes to home mortgages. Even if you have the cash to buy the house, not many people do to buy their first house, but you do to buy your second house because you've sold the first one and you've got all that equity that you roll over to the second house. Many people can afford to pay cash for the house, but in many cases, it makes a whole lot of sense to get a mortgage instead, even though you don't have to. And Apple, as you noted, is such a profitable company and has so much cash at its disposal. It's using debt because it's smart business. Uh, it's really that simple. So like you said, there's good debt and bad debt. Add it all up for us, though. When you say that the bond market's bigger than the stock market, give me some numbers. How much bigger? So you know, the, the, the corporate bond market, investment-grade corporate market's around $7 trillion. You've got about a trillion and a half in high yield. Um, and then you have roughly 20-plus trillion in U.S. government debt. So that's just in the U.S., um, that doesn't even include the mortgage space, which is another call it another 10 to 15 trillion. Um, so you add it all up, you're looking at somewhere, you know, a little less than 50 trillion dollars of, of U.S. bonds. Um, then you have to remember that there's also the, um, bank, the bonds that are coming out of Europe. There's bonds that are in Japan. There's bonds that are in China. So the global debt market. Uh, is somewhere in the magnitude of, of close to $100 trillion. I don't have the, uh, I don't have the numbers for the S&P 500, the market cap of that, but you know, it's, it's materially less. Um, and just the amount of trading that happens in the bond market on a day-to-day -day basis tends to be two to three times what you see in, in the stock market. And in addition to it being much bigger on a global basis than the stock market, there are a multitude more issuers as well. I mean, we all talk about in the world of stocks, we talk about, as you just mentioned, the S&P 500. That's 500 companies. But how many issuers of bonds would you say that there are? 
Oh yeah, there's there's endless amounts, and some of them are private, some of them are public. So um, you're you're generally looking at you know, over a thousand issuers um, that will be coming to the corporate debt market, um, possibly even in just any given year. But what I think is even more interesting about it is that if you take Apple for example, there's one stock for Apple. Um, they have something like 50 different QCIPs. Um, within the fixed income world. So they have a two-year bond, a three-year bond, a three and a quarter-year bond, a five-year bond. They even have 40-year bonds. When we say we like Apple or we don't like Apple, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that that we're talking about one particular bond. There's so many different ones of them. And that's often why a lot of individual investors go with a bond fund because they just say, look, there's so many to choose from. Where do I even start? Um, but you know, I just find it more three-dimensional because we can buy senior, we can buy subordinate, we can buy preferred, we can buy one year, three year, 10 year, 30 year. There's a lot of different ways to buy Apple versus with the stock, you know, there's just one. So to me, that's what's interesting. And that's what I find really uh, kind of exciting about the space. And in addition to the fact that there are thousands of issuers issuing thousands of individual bonds, uh, creating the multitude of variety that you mentioned, they vary in... I would say three major ways. As you noted, Apple stock is Apple stock is Apple stock. There's, you know, that's all there is to it. It's kind of dull and boring. But when it comes to Apple bonds, there are three factors. One, you cited the maturity date. Is it going to mature in two years or in 40 years? There's a big difference between the two. That relates to the interest rate that Apple is willing to pay for the bonds it issues. And generally, we'll talk about it more later, but generally speaking, they're willing to pay a higher rate of interest for a longer-term bond than a shorter-term. And then finally is the issue of credit record. Uh, what is the credit rating? How safe is this company perceived? Talk a little bit about credit risk and credit ratings and how that comes about and what that all means in the world of bonds. Yeah, so there's generally three ways that you get more yield. One is you get less liquid. So, you know, the less liquid, the more private you become, the longer you lock up your money, you can get more yield for that. The second one you just said by going further out the curve, a 30 year and 40 year bond should yield more than a one year bond. But the other option um, to get more yield is to go down in credit quality and or down the subordination, but generally just take down in credit quality, go with a double B or high yield rated bond versus a triple A or investment grade, you know, single A rated bond. So the more risk you take on, the, the more you should get paid, kind of risk return, uh, you know, gen general uh, balance there. And and so what we do with credit analysts and, and our, our, our whole depth of research is trying to figure out uh, is what we're getting paid uh, commensurate with the risk that we're taking of the credit quality of that company. And when the economy is good, you want to take on more risk. When the economy is bad, you want to take on less risk. And unfortunately, though, you often discover that the economy has turned bad after you bought the bond. I mean, look what's going on in 2022. And as we enter 2023, 2020, 2021 were great years. The economy was very robust. The stock market was booming. Unemployment rate was very low. Inflation was still pretty low. And it was pretty easy for people to get cocky saying, yeah, I don't have any problem uh, buying an Apple bond that matures in 40 years because Apple's a great company, hugely profitable. They've got billions of dollars in cash. What's to worry? Well, we can be very confident about buying an Apple bond that matures in a year or two. But who the heck knows what will be going on with Apple 40 years from now? And by then, the company could frankly be bankrupt, not even existing anymore. And that bond could become worthless. So to your point, the longer you're willing to let the company have your money, the more risk you're taking. And that's why investors demand more interest on those longer term bonds. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. We actually even have 100-year bonds, believe it or not. So <laughs> there are some 100-year bonds that exist. They're generally on rail companies and things like that, that people can conceptualize that they might be around in 100 years. But I point out to people, you know, there's two things. One is that there is some liquidity. You know, we can sell these bonds. So if we change our mind, you know, generally we're able to sell them. So that's why we have to keep on top of credit research even after we buy. We want to make sure that if something changes, we can sell it. But, but we really can only forecast three to four years out. And it's really hard to forecast any more than that. I mean, you throw in a pandemic, you know, really... <laughs> You really had, had, had no no uh, insight into what where the economy was going for for any extended period of time. But generally, we can only forecast three to maybe five years out. So you start going after that, then yeah, you need to get paid more money to lock up that or at least take on that that risk that um, maybe you won't be able to sell it or whatever. But that's why you get paid more. Um, I would say in really low interest rate times, people reach for yield because they weren't getting enough yield by buying T bills. They weren't getting enough anything in the bank account. So they said, I, in order to get a reasonable yield, I have to start going and locking in this money for longer and longer and longer. And what's kind of nice about today's market is that that sort of switch. So you're not desperate for yield like you were in 2021, um, which caused you know some 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 poor decisions or some stretches out of people. Um, but now you're in a more of an environment where you can actually get reasonable yields on a historical level just to buy you know one to five year bonds, which is a great opportunity versus where we've been for several years now. So when you say a, a reasonable rate of interest in a bond today, turn that into a number. What does that mean? Yeah. So a typical bond you can buy off the shelf, a three, four year bond of an investment grade company, um, you can get about 5%. So, you know, that 5% is kind of the, uh, the benchmark that you hear people talk about for years. If I could just get 5% by buying investment grade bonds, I probably would because that seems like a good number historically. And for the last several years, it's been more like one and a half to two and a half. Um, so when we're at this five-ish percent now that you can get by buying three, five, 10 year corporate bonds, um, a lot of investors are, are saying, well, that looks pretty interesting. Last year, they said, oh my God, I've just gotten crushed and everything. I don't know what nothing to do with it. This year, they're sort of waking up and saying it is 5% for you know this type of credit that you know, the Verizons, the AT&Ts of the world that you've heard of. And you say, well, these are not stretches to be buying these types of companies, these investment grade companies. So 5% looks pretty reasonable to us um, and to them. But again, it was a tough, tough, tough year last year. And, and so it took a little while to change the mentality of investors. And it's starting to turn over as this year is, is unfolding. And so let's, for a moment, digress to talk about the relationship between the bond market and the stock market, because there's there's a little thread in there I want to pull on. You noted that today you can probably get about a 5% interest rate from a three or five year bond. A couple of years ago, you could only get 1%. So go back a couple of years ago. If you could only get 1% in a bond, that was not very satisfying. People were, as you noted, yield chasing. They're looking for alternative ways to get higher interest. And what was really interesting is that a lot of these S&P 500 companies pay dividends. So if you own the stock, they pay you interest called a dividend by being a stockholder. And in many of these companies, those dividends are four or 5%. So people said, two, three years ago, if I can only earn 1% from their bonds, but I can earn 4% from their stock, I might as well buy the stock. And a lot of people argue, I want you to push back on this and tell me if you agree or disagree with me here, uh, Matt. A lot of people said that this is why the stock market did so well over the past few years, because there was no alternative. We called it TINA, in fact. T-I-N-A, there is no alternative. You have to buy stocks because there's nothing else to buy. Bonds are so low in their interest rate that you might as well buy the stock and get a big stock dividend. Do you think that that was any legitimacy to what I just said? 
So I was about to say Tina. So yes, uh, you, you, we're on the exact same page here and, and I get it. So yeah, we, we look at and the S&P 500 as a whole has a dividend yield of around 2%. So, but yes, individual stocks, some of them are four or 5%. And those were just automatic, you know, I don't want to say no brainers, but they were generally no brainers to the individual that was buying them, that that was the reason to buy it. And we talked to a lot of investors and they said the same thing. Well, if I can get more yield buying a stock, why in the world would I buy a bond? And I said, you're probably, you're right. I mean, I, I get it. You know, the only counter argument I could say to that is that coupons are obligatory and dividends are discretionary. Um, a company can turn off their dividend. They can, they don't have to pay a dividend. Um, they do have to pay the coupon. If they don't pay the coupon, you know, they're, they're out of business, but nobody really cares about that because generally companies don't stop paying their dividend or they, 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 right. they try not to at least. Right. Right. Um, but I, Tina existed and Tina drove everything up and now there is an alternative. Doesn't necessarily mean that stocks have to go down because of that, but I would say from a competitive landscape standpoint, point, you're looking at yields. And if you only care about yields, it's much more attractive by bonds right now than stocks. That's just, that's just a fact. I want to push back on, on that point that you just made. I want you to elaborate on it for us. The fact that if there now is an alternative, and we all agree there is because you can get bonds at 4 and 5%. And so people who were buying stocks to get that 4% are now going back to the bond market, which is where they came from. You don't think that that'll necessarily reduce demand for stocks that won't reduce the supply demand equation and won't that put pressure on the stock market well well i'm a bond guy so i don't want to you know sit here and be too biased towards <laughs> just bonds <laughs> but but you know I, i'm not speaking poorly of equities i always have to tell my equity colleagues but you're gonna have less people buying them you just it just it's just math now if that money comes out of somewhere else then then then, then maybe that can supplement it but yes if you have the same landscape of dollars more are going to go into bonds now than, 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 than stocks. You're seeing it at an institutional level, pension plans, things like that. They're just taking money out of stocks and putting them into bonds. And they're saying, I'm going to lock in this 5% because I've been waiting so long for it. And I'm an income buyer. I need the income and I can get a lot more income here with lower volatility over the long run than I can get in stocks. You made a statement that is really important. And I want to elaborate on this as well, because it's one of the things that causes the most surprise, shock, sadness among bond owners. You said that if you own a bond, even if it's a 40-year bond, you don't have to wait 40 years to get your money back. You can sell it in the open marketplace. The question is, what price will you get when you sell it? And there are, I think, only two primary factors affecting the price you will get for your bond. One of them is interest rates, and the other is credit quality. So talk about interest rates first. How do changes in interest rates affect the value of the bond you own? Yeah, so I'll try to simplify this as much as possible. <laughs> a yield of a bond is going to be your interest rate, your government interest rate, plus a credit spread premium. So how risky that is, you got to get paid more than the U.S. government because the U.S. government's going to pay you back, right? Um, so let's just use an example of 4% on a U.S. Treasury. And if you have 100 basis points of credit spread, that's a 5% yield. Um, if interest rates go up at the government level, uh, you multiply it by your duration. So if you have a um, 10 year duration, which you know just a large a, a round number, if interest rates go up 1%, um, you're gonna be down um, 10% on, on, that, on that bond. Um, that, that, that's kind of what we went through last year. We had 5% type duration and you moved really about four percentage points. So you take four percentage points times five, um, of the duration, that's 20 points that you move. That's a really big number. Now you get your coupon and that eats into that a little bit. Um, you get other factors that contribute there. But um, at the end of the day, it's a simple math of duration times the move in interest rates or all in uh, yields that you have. 
So I want to make sure that the consumers who are listening to us uh, and investors really understand what you just said, because this is the single most important reason why bond buyers get shocked. As interest rates go up, the value of your bond goes down. And the more that interest rates go up, the bigger the loss. And the longer your maturity date or duration, the longer your bond is going to last, the bigger that swing. The way I like to refer to it is a seesaw. If you have, uh, you know, picture two ends of a seesaw. You've got interest rates on one end, bond prices on the other end. One goes up, the other goes down, mathematically fact. But in the middle of that seesaw, picture a 30-day treasury. It doesn't move very much to interest rates because you're going to get your money back within a month. But now go out to the edge of the seesaw to a 30-year maturity. That has a really wide fluctuation in value. So as interest rates go up, the value of the bond goes down. And people need to understand this. This is why, to your point, last year, interest rates went up 5%. The Fed raised rates five times last year. And those radical increases in rates caused a radical decline in bond prices. Now, as you said, it was offset by the income you were getting from the bond. But at the end of the day, the bond market, 10-year treasuries lost 13% last year, the worst in history. They've never lost as much money as they did last year. And this is why it happened. So people need to ask themselves, I think, Matt, one fundamental question. Do you think interest rates are going to keep going up? Because if you believe they're going to keep going up, you're basically saying that bond prices are going to keep going down. So what's your take on where we are today with what the Federal Reserve is doing regarding future interest rate increases? Yeah, spot on with everything you just said there. The only thing I'll add to the to the to what you said is that you, you do have a larger coupon today. So that that buffer, we call it a buffer. You know, you're at a five percent coupon versus one percent. One percent on that seesaw got eaten into pretty quickly. Five percent can still get eaten into, but it's just a little harder. It gives you a little bit more of a of a cushion there or a buffer. Um now where are we on interest rates? So you know, the Fed Reserve, we just had an inflation number uh, come out um, here in the U.S. So um, inflation is down. It's coming down. It's come down for six straight months at a headline level, but it's still elevated. Um, if you look at the, the levels of inflation, they're just north of 6% on the headline, meaning including gas and food. Um, and it's 5.7% or just below 6% um, on core. So it's coming down, but it's still high. And everybody says, well, Matt, 5.7% still looks pretty aggressive to me. I think the Fed's got to be staying uh, you know, at an elevated level for a long time and keep actually hiking. But we say, okay, well, let's peel the onion back a little bit. And if you look at the last three months and annualize it, um, on a headline number, it's 1.8%. So the last three months, if they continued at that pace for another nine months, you would come back and nine months from now and say inflation in the United States was just 1.8%. That's pretty good. The Fed targets 2%. So that's actually below their target. But they generally look at core, which excludes energy and food prices. And that annualized is at 3.1%. So that's still above where the Fed feels comfortable, but it's a lot better than where it was because it was around 7%. So we're getting the trajectory better. Inflation is slowing. And the Fed is coming out and telling you our hikes are working, but we're not done yet. And so we think the Fed has probably two more hikes in them. They're going to hike, uh, I believe, at the next meeting, uh, February 1st. And then they'll hike probably another time in March. But that's, those are 25 basis points. So they have been doing 75 basis points and then 50. And then they're going to go 25. They're kind of just weeding themselves off here. Um, but they're, at, they're kind of like the eighth inning, I would say. So that's the end of the, of the game. The market tends to price in 
um, things before the Fed is done. So the market's actually starting to say, look, the Fed is close to being done hiking and they're going to do a good job. We believe that will crush inflation. And then late 2023 or early 24, they're actually going to have to start to cut. And the market's starting to front run that, uh, which makes for an interesting ride back lower on the seesaw if we get that to, to occur. If the Fed reduces interest rates, then the value of the bond goes up, which is great news. And that's what we frankly have had from roughly 1982 through, what, 2009? Interest rates steadily went down for a 40-year period of time. Anybody who has been buying bonds over the past 40 years has only seen the value of bonds rise because interest rates have been steadily dropping. What's been going on the past decade with interest rates beginning to go up is unprecedented in our lifetimes. And this is why I think so many people are so shocked to see bond losses because that hadn't happened in the last 40 years. Yeah, it's certainly when people pull up in their statements, they say, I thought this was supposed to be the safe part of my, my portfolio. I'm down in my stocks and in my bonds. And if you combine the two, the traditional 60-40 portfolio, I think was the worst since like 1860 or something like that. So it's been an, a very unfortunate year and they've been very correlated. Historically, bonds rally when, when equities are selling off because um, it means that there's a flight to quality. You're running away from your, your risk assets and equities and running to the fixed income market. But what was so rare about 2022 was that the fixed income market was adjusting and causing everybody to realize that the era of low interest rates might be over. Um, doesn't mean we're going back to the 1980s, you know, 15, 20%, but there's era of basically free money that we had in 2020, uh, you know, certainly, certainly done. Now, there's something going on in the bond market that is unusual, not unheard of, but unusual. And it's worth talking about because everybody on Wall Street's in a tizzy over it. And you know what I'm about to be talking about, the inverted yield curve. Let me explain for folks what an ordinary yield curve is. Uh, you've already kind of referred to it, Matt. We're talking with Matt Brill, the head of North American investment grade for Invesco Fixed Income. You mentioned that Apple, for example, issues bonds that are one-year bonds, two-year bonds, all the way out to 40-year. We know the U.S. government issues similarly. They have 30-day treasuries and they have 30-year treasuries. We know that the longer the maturity date, the bigger the risk. Will Apple exist in a year? Sure. But will it exist in 40 years? A little less sure. So investors demand to earn a higher interest rate for a longer maturity. So think about that on a chart. The one year is in the beginning of the chart. The 30 years at the end of the chart. And as you go out to the 30 years, the interest you're being paid rises. That's a normal curve. But we're now in an environment where people are fearful of an inverted yield curve, meaning I'm earning more interest on a one year than if I were to buy a 30 year. Why is that happening and why does it matter? Yeah, so it, it's a great question. And we get a lot of clients that simply say, I just want to own T-bills. I just want to own front end cash because I can get more. And We'll get into why that's maybe not the right decision in a minute, but let me just explain you know, why that even exists in the first place. So the Federal Reserve is basically hiking overnight rates. The Federal Reserve does not control 10-year treasuries. I think that's one thing people need to understand. The Federal Reserve, they, they can buy bonds and sell bonds and whatever, but at the end of the day, really, mainly what the Federal Reserve does is control overnight interest rates. And they've been hiking overnight interest rates because they want to make it more expensive for your credit cards and for banks and everybody to borrow overnight money. And as it gets more expensive, that slows the economy. So they're trying to slow the economy because they need to crush inflation. So the Federal Reserve is going to get to around 5% 
on overnight Fed funds, somewhere between four and three quarters, 5%. You know, we can debate where it goes, but somewhere around 5%. Let's just say 5%. But after that, the Federal Reserve is not going to keep it there forever. And at some point, they're going to actually lower it. And so if the Federal Reserve is successful, and we think they will be in crushing inflation, that means that at some point in the future, they're going to actually lower rates because they need to, they need to get the economy going at a more normalized pace. If they keep rates at too high for too long, it basically chokes the economy for long enough that we cannot get a normal economy going. People are out of work. And then the Federal Reserve says, uh-oh, we went too far. We need to stop pushing their brake. We need to start putting on the pedal, which means cutting rates, getting the economy going. And so there's what we call reinvestment risk. And reinvestment risk is basically Yes, you get access to 5%, but you only get it for so long. And what happens in six months from now, a year from now, when that bond comes due and you get your cash back, what are you going to reinvest in? Are you still going to get 5%? Are you going to get 3%? Are you going to get 2%? We don't know. But what pensions as well as some individuals are doing is they're saying, I want to lock in these yields for a long time because I think the Federal Reserve might be cutting in 2024 back to 1% to 2%. And then we're going to have a 10-year treasury at that really low level. And I won't be able to get these attractive yields for very long. Therefore, I need to lock it in longer now. And that's what's happening. So the idea is that rates are high now, but in the future, they'll be low and that it'll kind of average out to this level where the 10-year treasury is today. And as a result, we have a yield curve where there's an upside down effect as to you expect longer term to be higher in rate, but in fact, the shorter term for the moment are higher in rate. And that's not common. That's not common. And I, I will point out, though, because, you know, you, you mentioned that we've been on a 40 year trajectory of lower rates. So you often hear the story of the grandmother back in 1980 that bought her kids or grandkids 30 year treasuries. You know, you hear a lot of those stories. I'm sure you have over the years. of What a great trade grandma made. It's absolutely amazing. Grandma locked in at 12 percent on, on 30 year U.S. treasuries. Amazing job, grandma. At the same time there was 18% Fed funds. So you could have got money market funds for 18%. I have never heard anybody tell a story of their grandmother locking in at a T-bill for three months or six months. Because yes, you got it for 18% for three months, but then it went away. And so you had to reinvest that at a lower rate and a lower rate and a lower rate for the next 40 years. So that's why there's these opportunities to lock in. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But at these elevated yield levels, you kind of have to say, look, that does look pretty attractive. And if I can get 5% to own something for 30 years, I'm okay with that. And maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't. But if you don't at least do some of your portfolio in that, I think you're missing opportunities, particularly when the market gives them to you. Now, in addition to this interesting dynamic of this inverted yield curve is what some people regard as a warning that that yield curve is signaling to the broader market. They fear that what that means is that we're going to go into recession. And if you look historically, whenever we've had an inverted yield curve, there usually has been a recession shortly following. So do you feel that this is an effective warning signal that a recession is coming? And if so, when and how severe? So it certainly means things are going to slow. You know, the, the best of times for nominal growth certainly has slowed, meaning with, you know, if you don't knock off inflation, growth is going to slow. We think real growth could be potentially negative. You could have, uh, you know, be right on the cusp of a recession. We're calling for the soft landing. We're in a little bit of the minority there. Um, you know, people say, well, wh why does the yield curve even matter? Well, here's why it matters. If a bank is borrowing overnight at 5% and they're lending at 3%, they're not going to do that, right? So they stop lending. If you have an inverted yield curve, it becomes harder and harder to get loans. And loans are really the, the lifeblood of the economy, lifeblood of the financial system. So that's why it matters. That's, you know, kind of fundamentally why it matters. Um, if it stays inverted for a very long time, 
um, we are definitely going to have a recession. I think it's inevitable that that will occur. Um, if the Federal Reserve pivots in late 2023 and says, look, inflation's under control, the economy's slowed, but it hasn't slowed too bad. We can get this thing back in line. You know, that's what we call kind of a soft landing. That means that the economy doesn't really just get completely wrecked. It seems to just a nice, easy balance. You probably have a GDP of maybe only a half a percent, but it's positive and everybody kind of continues on with a good job market, but it's not as robust as it is today. You know, that's that's the scenario we're calling for. Um, but if the Fed kind of says we are going to stay at 5% until the last little bit of inflation is crushed. That means you're probably going to go into recession late 2023, early 2024, um, which would be good for bonds, but not necessarily good for corporate bonds. It'd be good for treasuries because that's kind of that flight to quality that would take place at that time. So given everything that you've described, where interest rates have been, where they are today, where you're projecting they're going to be in the future, is there any particular area in the world of fixed income that is worth investing in today? Well, we think there's a lot of lot of places that are that are worth investing. You know, it's it's been if you'd asked me a year ago, um, there was more problems a year ago around inflation. Now I think there's more problems around growth. So I do think that um, the inflation story, which has been so spooky to bondholders, I think is almost over. It's not quite there, not, not ready to declare victory yet, but I, I think that's almost over. Now we have to focus on how slow the economy is going to go. Um, but I think you know if you buy that three to five year part of the market, um, getting 5% high quality investment grade companies, um, I think that that's a good opportunity, and I think that that's a, a a nice place to be if the economy heads into a recession. If the economy heads into a recession, the you know the investment grade names of the world, and these aren't recommendations, but I just use them as references. The Verizon and the AT and T's and the Apples and the Microsofts, you know, they're probably going to be fine, right? But if you get into that kind of that high yield portion of the market. Um, and the economy really does have that that slow or that that hard landing. Um, you're going to have more trouble there. So for me, that sweet spot is to get a little bit out of that money market, kind of that cash area. Go lock in your money for three to five years at what we think are attractive interest rates. It does have liquidity if you need to pull it out. But I'm just saying, go add a little bit of duration to your portfolio, add a little bit of credit risk, not just governments, be more investment grade. And I think that's a sleep at night, do well um, portfolio that I think is set up for three to five years. Um, and you don't have to take a lot of credit risk now to get attractive yields, which I think is the best thing about this market. So you, you mentioned the phrase high yield. That is a little bit of jargon. I want to make sure folks fully understand what we're talking about here and the inherent opportunities and risks associated with, with the high yield bond market. When I hear the phrase high yield, my initial reaction is, great, why wouldn't I want a high yield? Isn't that the whole point of buying a bond? Yes. And there are great opportunities in high yield, but with yield comes comes risk, right? So you don't nothing's for free in this world, um, particularly in the bond market. So we make you pay up if you're a little bit riskier. And so um, the high yield market is, is companies that S&P, Moody's and Fitch do not qualify or classify as investment grade, um, which the lowest investment grade rating is triple B minus. This is below that. So typically institutions, pension plans, et cetera, are not allowed to buy high yield because they have to have an investment grade mandate. Um, but in the high yield space right now, the yields are around 8%. So they are very attractive. And if you are a believer that the US can avoid a recession, I think you can do very well in high yield. Um, if I if you're if you're a believer that the U.S. is absolutely headed into a recession, then you need to avoid high yield because the companies that have greater risk there will have greater greater defaults in 2023 and 2024 as well. So the ability to repay the debt in a tough economy of uh, if that were to occur becomes harder. And so I think that that's why you have to be a little bit careful in high yield. Um, but again, eight percent does make for make up for some mistakes. It'll make up for some defaults. But you have to be careful there if you particularly believe that the economy is going to have a more difficult 2023 and 2024. 
So let me make sure people understand just how significant this is in this scale of credit ratings. You begin with AAA, that is the very best, very safest issuer, which is, of course, the U.S. government. How many companies have a AAA rating? Uh, that's a good question. So we used to have a handful. These all have been kind of downgraded one by one, but it used to be Johnson to Johnson, Apple, Microsoft, UPS with AAA. UPS is no longer, I believe J&J has lost their, uh, I think they've lost it. Exxon was AAA rated. They lost it. Um, I think you're still looking at Microsoft um, and Apple might be AA. So it's, it's, it's very small. The difference between AA and AAA isn't a lot, but it's the, 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 the AAA was a, was, a, was a great club to be in. And then they realized maybe we could take on a little bit more debt. Um, Exxon's was a little different because I think oil prices kind of caused it and they wanted to keep their dividend going. Um, but the other ones just said, look, there's really not a big difference between AA and AAA. I'll borrow a little more debt. And so we need to recognize that AAA is really the, the holy grail of bond issuers, and it's an exclusive club. Uh, so you go from AAA to AA to single A, then you go triple B, double B, single B, and you all have pluses and minuses within all of them too. You have double B plus, double B, double B minus. By the time you get to, as you said, uh, the bottom rung of investment grade, which is triple B minus, right? That's that's the lowest level of investment grade. Everything from triple B minus and above is investment grade considered a safe bond, meaning highly likely that the issuer will repay your principal at maturity date. You're going to get your interest on schedule. You're going to get your money back at maturity. Everything below that, beginning with triple C, all the way down to D, which means default, the company's out of business, they're not paying interest, they're not going to repay your bond, the company's bankrupt most likely. You refer to them as high yield, but there is another phrase, and that is speculative grade. And if people realize that they were taking a speculation on their bond, I think they would often be shocked. Yeah, and and you you need to get paid for it. If you're not if you if you're not getting paid for it, then you're at, you should even be more shocked. That's for sure. I, I always like to give names just because I think it gives context to things. In the triple C space, which is the lowest portion of high yield, you're not going to really know any of those companies. <laughs> you're probably not going to know most of them. But in the double B space, Netflix is rated double B, Ford is rated double B, Occidental Petroleum, Delta. So there's some companies that are household names that are in that in that in that high yield zip code. Now they don't yield the same as triple C either. So generally the more, you know, it, um, the more that the retail advisors might buy it, but it's not all toxic, but it certainly is more risk. And I think that that's kind of the key thing you have to point out is that there's a lot more risk there and they're, they're there for a reason. They have problems. They have a lot more debt. Um, and generally they're, they're more susceptible to an economic downturn as well. So with all of this, we have, um, so much confusion, I think, for the ordinary individual investor. So many things to think about. You begin with the premise that the investor says, yes, I want to own bonds. I want to have some of my money in a fixed income investment rather than the stock market, rather than the real estate market, rather than the crypto market. I want a portion of my money in bonds. And for most investors, it's a pretty big portion. You know, it's 30, 40, 50, 60% of their total investment portfolio. So it's a big decision of buying bonds. And as soon as you say, okay, I want to buy bonds, the question now perks up, what bonds do I buy? Do I buy a bond issued by the U.S. government or by a major corporation or by a municipal government, a state government or a county or a city or a local municipality? And once I make that decision of who's the issuer, then I have to decide what's the maturity date 
that I want to buy. Do I want to buy a one-year or a 10-year or, as you said, some of them are issuing 100-year maturity dates? And then once I decide on the maturity date, I have to decide the credit quality. Do I want to buy a AAA bond or a double B or a single C? My head's exploding. How do I do this? And every time I buy a bond and it comes to maturity, that means I get my money back and I have to make the decision all over again because I've got the cash in my pocket and I've got to reinvest it. So my goodness, what a nuisance. How can investors have it both ways. I get the bonds that I really want to own without the hassle of having to build and pick a bond portfolio. Well, you just described why I have job security versus AI, I think, at the end of the day, right? It's, <laughs> it's a very complicated market and there will always be a need for a bond manager because there's just so there's so many different things out there. Um, you know, there, there's opportunities within the SMA world. So, um, you know, separately managed accounts, you can buy a portfolio and they basically put it through a paper shredder and you own the physical bonds. Um, that's one way a lot of investors do it. And then if you don't want to uh, have it be managed by the manager, you just take your bonds and you, you have them off on your own. Um, in Investco, we have something called bullet shares, which is basically you pick a year of the maturity. You say, I want a 2025. Um, we buy 300 plus bonds for you in that exact year. Um, as they mature, we roll it out to the back half of the year, and then eventually you just get your cash for it. We also have actively managed accounts. You know, we have actively managed ETFs, GTOs, one that we manage. We have actively managed mutual funds. So you can kind of give it to us and let us manage it, or we can say, use the SMA and you kind of control it. Use the bullet shares where you can pull the maturity. There's a lot of different ways to do it. I mean, I, I, at the end of the day, you know, talk to your advisor, tell, ask them what they, what they think is the best way to, to do this. It's not easy and, and it can be intimidating. And I, I think what one thing we don't want though is people to not buy it because they, they don't understand it. Uh, we want them to get educated on it. It's not as intimidating as it, as it seems. It's like going into you know, a fancy restaurant or something and you're ordering all these things at once. And once you've done it once, you realize, oh, this, this is pretty easy to do. But the first time you do it, you're, you're, you're intimidated. So ask questions, ask of your advisor. You know, there's a lot of instruments out there and obviously listen to podcasts like this to help you uh, get educated on how to be involved in the bond market. And, and talk about how an investor would access the bond funds and investments that you mentioned, your, your separately managed accounts uh, and your bullets and so on. How do they access Invesco directly through Invesco.com or through their financial advisor, whichever way they prefer? Yeah, whichever way you prefer, generally through your financial advisor. There's a lot of research out there on, on the Invesco website. You know, my, my team manages GTO, um, just like the car. That's an actively managed ETF. Um, it's kind of a catch anything bond fund. It's basically, I want to own bonds. You know, Matt, here you go. You run with it and, and um, you know, you, you do what you can with it. And that, that's that's kind of where we figure out where most investors lie is they, they simply know that they want a quality. We, we have framework around how much quality is in it, how much high yield, how much speculative is allowed in it, et cetera. Um, let us manage it for you. But, you know, again, if you want to manage it on your own, there, there's so many different options out there within the municipal space as well. Mesco is really, really strong in that space. And given that tax rates are probably not going down anytime soon, you know, the municipal space makes a lot of sense as well for, for investors looking for income, but also, uh, you know, not having to pay it all to the government. It's been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it, Matt. Thank you so much. That's Matt Brill. He's the head of North American Investment Grade for Invesco's Fixed Income Department. And you can learn more from your financial advisor or also, of course, directly at Invesco at Invesco.com. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate it. You know, for the past couple of years on my radio show and podcast, we've been presenting to you Gene's Word of the Week. And I'm going to play for you Gene's Word of the Week this week. However, I want you to know that Gene's segment 
Self-Care with Jean Edelman is now her own independent podcast, and the new podcast premieres every Thursday. So Jean's segment, which I'm presenting to you today, actually debuted yesterday on Jean's own podcast. So you can listen to her podcast, subscribe separately to Self-Care with Jean Edelman. It's available at thetruthayf.com and everywhere that you get your podcasts. Here's Jean. Each week, we'll explore a word that I hope gives us perspective and provides an opportunity to pause and check in with ourselves. For decades, I've been a student of the healing arts, Reiki, traditional Chinese medicine, homeopathy, acupuncture, plant-based, and macrobiotic cooking. Join me on this journey and hear my word of the week. Great to be with you this week. This week, I want to talk about staying warm. Well, I'm not sure where you are, but it's winter here. And all I can remember is when I was a young girl, my mom telling me to put my hat and scarf on and mittens. Well, you know what? It did sink in. And nowadays, whenever I see somebody out in the cold weather without a hat, scarf, and gloves, I'm like, oh, I hear my mom's voice in the back of my head. But now, years later, after I've studied traditional Chinese medicine, and all my other healing arts, I do understand why my mom was telling me to put on my hat, scarf, and gloves. I do understand a little bit more about our body and our immune system and how important it is to stay warm. The areas of our body that we really, really want to keep warm when it's windy and wet and cold is our feet and our hands, our lower back, our neck, and the top of our head. We lose the most heat out of the top of our head. I think it's really taking a moment and acknowledging and respecting and caring for our immune system. And it really does mean staying warm. I've learned with traditional Chinese medicine that the winter is also associated with our kidneys. Each season has an organ system that it relates to. And so now with winter, it's our kidneys. And we really want to take care of our kidneys. And that means warm warm tea and warm soup and warm food. We don't want to be eating cold salads and lots of fruit and ice cream and icy drinks. These are all harmful to our kidneys. This is all harmful to our immune system when we need it to be at its best and its strongest in the winter. A little trick, did you know that our kidneys are also reflected in our ears? So for our action item this week, if you're feeling tired or maybe you have a little cold, you can gently massage your ears. And this will give us a little micro boost of energy and particularly good if you're on Zoom calls and you've got headphones on your ears a lot. Rub your ears when you're done. See how good you feel. So when we're out in the weather, we really, really want to think of our immune system. We want to honor it and we want to keep it warm. And so our feet, our lower back, our neck, our hands, our head, we want them all nice and warm as we move through the winter. So my word of the week, very simple, is warm. The W is for well. I don't know about you, but staying well is a major goal in my life. Learning about our body and how it works and our immune system is really important for a long, healthy, joyful life. We really don't want to be bogged down with ailments. That's not living. 
being mindful and taking care of our one and only body, that is the goal. The A is for active. Movement is very important, especially when it's cold. And that movement and breath really nourishes our immune system. And so we do want to get out and walk in the winter, but we want to make sure we're bundled up. We want to practice yoga and Tai Chi and Qigong because this slow movement with deep breaths is so good for our immune system and our kidneys. The R is for robust because when we are healthy and happy, we can live a full and rewarding life. Be prepared. If you know weather's coming, be prepared. Make sure you've got enough layers. Plan ahead. Keep our body happy and warm. And the M is for magic. Good health is amazing. To wake up with no aches and pains, what what would that be like? That would be wonderful. And this is the goal. But we can only do that when we're paying attention. And we can only do that when we're taking care of ourselves and we're not taking this beautiful vessel for granted. We need to protect it and nourish it. So stay warm. Get those hats and gloves and scarves out. Make sure your lower back stays warm. Have a great week, everybody. The Truth About Your Future is sponsored by Global X ETFs. With volatile fuel prices and growing concern about the environment, consumers are embracing alternatives. Should your portfolio do the same? At Global X ETFs, we specialize in investments that look beyond household names, providing access to companies in emerging areas like electric vehicles and lithium battery production. So whether you're interested in EVs, hydrogen fuel cells, or another green technology, there is a world of opportunity to explore. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to learn more. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents of innovation. Ordinary people who shape the future by putting their money behind the right ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Be an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. That's it for today's podcast, The Truth About Your Future. I'm Rick Edelman. Have a wonderful weekend. And if you haven't seen all of my master classes, be sure to visit thetruthayf.com. They're all free and available for you on a variety of personal finance topics. My master classes at thetruthayf.com. See you Monday. The Truth About Your Future with Rick Edelman has been brought to you by Global X ETFs, dedicated to providing investors with unexplored intelligent solutions, and by Invesco QQQ, a fund that allows you to access the innovators of the NASDAQ 100. Invesco.com slash QQQ. Get the truth about your future with Rick Edelman. It's the truthayf.com.